Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One matter to which Lev Shestov devotes a lot of discussion in All Things Are Possible is what we can lump under the rubric of creative activity. What it is that people who are really thinking things through or taking experience and making something of it and producing creative work in a broad sense are actually engaged in and how it differs from the public imagination of it. And we should keep in mind that Chestov himself, he talks about a lot of creative people in here, a lot of authors, for example, many of which are from Russian literature, many of which are from, from other nations' literature as well. And he includes philosophers among that, particularly philosophers like, like Nietzsche. But Chestov himself is also a creative person, and the kind of philosophical work that he does is intense and anti-systematic. It's aphoristic. He writes in passages rather than trying to come up with a, a total system. And so in, in a certain way, he's exemplifying some of what he's talking about here. And in my view, the, the most interesting part, and I think he's completely right about this, is where he's talking about the difficulties and trials and uncertainties of engaging in creative work. So in chapter 42, for instance, he has this wonderful discussion. He talks about, people say, the raptures of creative activity, empty words invented by men who never had an opportunity of judging from their own experience, who derive their conclusions syllogistically. If a creation gives us such delight, what must the creator himself experience? And so the idea is those who are closer to the, the creative work will even more enjoy the creative work. It's sort of like saying, you know, we might talk about chefs, for example, and say, wow, this dish tastes so wonderful. It must be a joy to prepare it. And, and sometimes it is. And sometimes it's complete drudgery. And sometimes you have to start again and throw away ingredients and you're thinking in your head, well, there just went 20 bucks. And so it's not quite the same as the outside public has it. And really, if you think about the ways in which creative activity is portrayed in movies and television, and sometimes even in literature, those are crazy ideas as well. <laughs> you know, you, you can't just do a montage and suddenly have a one wonderful thing to show people, right? So what is it really like? He says, usually the creator feels only vexations. Every creation is created out of the void. At the best, the maker finds himself confronted with a formless, meaningless, usually obstinate and stiff matter, which yields reluctantly to form. When we're doing genuine creative things, we do have some sort of matter that we're working with. Think about wood carving, for example. You have the wood and the wood has a certain grain. And then as you're beginning to carve it, you find out that it has certain inconsistencies and splinters come off and it resists us. Same thing with, with clay, it's never perfect. Same thing with you know, imagining something and then wanting to put it down on paper in drawing or writing. We have a, an idea and we're like, oh, this is a great idea. I've got to put this out there. This is going to be so helpful for people. And as you're doing it, even your thoughts, 
sometimes resist. And you're, you're working oftentimes without models because if you're relying totally on models, you're not creative. You're just sort of replicating what other people have done. So he says, every time a new thought is gendered, so often must that new thought, which for the moment seemed brilliant and fascinating, be thrown aside as worthless. And here's where we get to the real crux. Creative activity is a continual progression from failure to failure. And the condition of the creator is usually one of uncertainty, mistrust, and shattered nerves. The more serious and original the task which a man sets himself, the more tormenting is the self misgiving. As soon as one is working with important stuff, one becomes conscious, at least if you're not just a you know, complete egotist or solipsist or somebody who's full of themselves, who was not going to produce good work anyway, usually, unless they're blessed with some incredible raw talent, which won't get developed, of course. If you're a, what we might call a normal creator, you become aware of the magnitude of what you're trying to take on. You become aware that what you're doing, if it is successful, only represents one perspective on something that's going to be quite complex. And so he says, you know, there's a temptation here. This goes actually into the sort of, you know, mistaken ideas and inferences part. He says, every connoisseur of art is satisfied if he recognizes in a new work, the accepted manner of the artist. Few realize that the acquiring of a manner is the beginning of the end. Artists realize well enough and would be glad to be rid of their manner, which seems to them a hackneyed affair. He who has been through the creative raptures is not easily tempted to try again. Many will just keep churning out the same thing, whether we're talking about music or we're talking about, you know, cultural criticism or we're talking about installations. And at a certain point we could be like, oh yeah, that's another one of this person's things. I don't even have to like look at it. I know what direction they're going in. And the creative process has been lost. He's got another really great description of the creative person in chapter two of part two. He says that, here we go. This is really great. To think, really to think, surely this means relinquishing logic. It means living a new life. It means a permanent sacrifice of the dearest habits, tastes, attachments, without even the assurance that the sacrifice will bring any compensation. Anytime that you're engaging in real creative activity, whether it be artistic or philosophical, you are taking risks. And he says, artists and philosophers like to imagine the thinker with a stern face, a profound look which penetrates into the unseen and a noble bearing, an eagle preparing for flight. So that's the common representation. And obviously he doesn't mean all artists and all philosophers because some of these artists and philosophers are themselves creative people who are engaging in thought. So what does a thinking person really look like? This is a, a wonderful description. A thinking person is one who has lost their balance in the vulgar, not in the tragic sense. Hands raking the air, feet flying, face scared and bewildered, a caricature of helplessness and pitiable perplexity. Why? because they don't actually know what they're doing. And they realize that they realize they're out of their depth. When they get into anything that really matters, something that has profundity to it, something that is complex, something that's close to the life that we're living and not just facsimiles of it, they are out of balance and yet they still have to try to do something. So they're, they're wandering around off balance, right? Now, sometimes that off balance can be turned into something useful. We might use the example here of the fencer who engages in a flesh attack where you literally place yourself off balance so you can run at your opponent and try to cut or stab depending on what weapon you're, you're using and take them by surprise, right? 
but it's a risky maneuver. It leaves you vulnerable to getting hit in the back as you go past them and you might collide with them. Who knows what's going to happen, right? There is really no method for becoming creative. And he has a discussion in 2.5 about whether it's possible to produce poets using poets as sort of the stand-in for the creative person. He says, certainly we cannot make a child a poet by forcing him to study literary models from the most ancient to the most modern. Neither will anyone hear us in America, no matter how loud we shout here, because Americans are always given to methods, right? To make a poet of a person, they must not be developed among ordinary lines. Maybe books should be kept from them. Maybe it's necessary to perform some apparently dangerous operation on him, fracture his skull, throw him out of a fourth story window. I will refrain from recommending these methods as a substitute for pedagogy. And he says, but that's not really the point. You cannot make a poet by some sort of method or techniques. So a little bit later on, he, he has a really interesting set of reflections in the next chapter, chapter six of part two. He talks about the poet until Apollo, the god of poetry, calls him to the sacrifice. The poet is plunged in the cares of this shoddy world, right? And he says, Pissarev, the critic, was exasperated by these verses. If they'd not belonged to Pushkin, all the critics would have condemned them. And then he says, but this is actually quite true. The poet can get into all sorts of trouble and not just mischief, but corruption and degeneration when they're left to their own devices. It's not a matter of if we want to be great writers or great thinkers that we should simply be virtuous people and always, you know, rise early in the morning to practice our craft as if life was a bunch of life hacks, you know, that you can get from some listicle in, in some website, right? People like that don't know anything about creativity. And, and it shows in their works, which are usually garbage, just regurgitated tips and tricks, right? People who are gonna show real profundity are probably not gonna be bestsellers, or if they are, most of the people purchasing the book will bring it to the beach and read it for a little while and put it down. But th that's not what really matters, is it? So we have to realize that the really creative person is probably going to be kind of a, a mess, kind of a chaos. Does that mean that then you should like deliberately go out and hang around bars and you know stay up all night and get into all sorts of weird practices? That's not going to automatically make you a poet. And I, you know, my, personally, I've seen so many people who thought that just because they were living on the seedy side of life, that somehow that was turning them into creative people when really they were just slowly degenerating. But this is something that is quite important. There, the way in which we picture creative work is quite different than what somebody living it actually goes through. There's some other mistaken ideas and inferences. He's got this great discussion about what happens. You know the old saying that you don't want to meet your heroes? Well, he, uh, he talks about that. So mistaking the writer for the person. This is nearly at the end of the work in chapter 42. He says, people who read much must always keep in mind that life is one thing, literature another. Not that authors invariably lie. There are writers who rarely and most reluctantly lie, but one must know how to read and that isn't easy. So what's an example of this? He says, it's a common belief that any writer who sings of suffering must be ready at all times to open his arms to the weary and heavy laden. This is what the readers feel like when they read his books. Then when they approach him with their woes and find that he runs away without looking back at them, they're filled with indignation and they talk about the discrepancy between word and deed. And this is, you know, quite silly on their part, 
Whoever told them that just because somebody writes about something that that's what their life is focused on. You might as well go to a logic textbook writer and you know, accuse them of being illogical in their daily life because they don't follow exactly what they set out in the textbook. There are many people who write about things and they've done research on them, but that doesn't mean that that's what their life is all the time. And it's foolishness to believe that or expect that. And we lend ourselves to these sorts of silliness things. For example, you read Kant and then you read the little accounts of Kant walking at regular times so that people could set their watch by him and you imagine this character. And then you find out that he was actually a bon vivant at dinner parties and wrote about that in, you can find it in his work. He actually laid out rules for dinner parties in his anthropology from a pragmatic point of view. And then you're like, whoa, this is a totally different person or at least not totally different, but quite different. Well, whose fault is that? It's yours for being credulous about literature and its connection with, with life. He also talks about how authors can sometimes fool themselves. He says, and this is quite true, that literature deals with the, here we go, this is in chapter 28, literature deals with the most difficult and important problems of existence. Quite true. As a matter of fact, that's why we're always going to need literature. We're always going to need other things like literature, including music and art and philosophy and history, some of the other humanities as well. We're going to need film. These do in fact, when they're doing their job well, deal with these existential questions and they are important and they are difficult and they can never be handled just by say the natural or social sciences or by management techniques, or as I mentioned, putting together a bunch of life hacks. People try to do that and then they, they screw things up. Right? So literature is very important, at least the, the good parts of it. And then he says, here's the mistake. Therefore, literateurs consider themselves the most important of people. Now, who would be the literateurs? Well, it would be the creative people who actually create literature. And it would also be all the people who talk about literature. We could talk about the literature world, people who tell us what we should read and why we should read it and have, have podcasts and TV shows and all that sort of stuff. And he says, here's a metaphor for you. A bank clerk who's always handing money out might as well consider himself a millionaire. Just because you carry around James Joyce and, you know, rhapsode about how great Ulysses is, which by the way, I don't think it's very, I don't, I don't like Ulysses myself, but people do talk about what, what a wonderful piece of literature this is. That doesn't mean you have anything in common whatsoever with James Joyce. The mere fact that you've been able to run your eyes over the pages till you got to the end of the book doesn't mean that you actually understood anything. And even if you did understand something, it might not be worth understanding. You might not have figured out anything by doing that. Same thing you could say for reading Shestoff, right? I mean, maybe you should be a Shestoff yourself. So he says the high estimate placed on unexplained unsolved questions ought really to discredit writers in our eyes. And yet these literary men are so clever, so cunning at stating their own case and revealing the high importance of their mission. In the long run, they convince everybody themselves most of all. And he says, you know, we could contrast this to the Roman 
priests, the augurs who would cut open different animals, usually birds, and then like make predictions based on that. And Cicero actually has one of these people in On the Nature of the Gods, book three, talking about how they laugh while they're doing this. They're like, look at these stupid suckers believing in this, that organs would reveal the future to them. And, you know, he says writers don't do that. Instead, they lay their improbable assertions before the public and they have to be convinced in their own minds. Otherwise, they cannot begin. People come up with all sorts of crazy stuff that allows them to put their their ideas out there. They have to believe in those ideas, right? At least to some degree, unless they're in on a grift. All right, let's talk about tricks and tropes and some advice that he gives. Now, this might be seen as rather cynical. He's making some observations about what it is that writers do and how it works. Is he recommending it? Is he not recommending it? Is he actually saying that this is his own practice? I leave that to you to decide. So he says, when a writer has to express, this is in in, in chapter 40 of part one, when a writer has to express an idea whose foundation he's not been able to establish and which is yet dear to his heart so that he earnestly wishes to secure its general acceptance... As a rule, he does, he does this. This is the trick. He interrupts his exposition and makes a small or at times a serious digression, during which he proves the invalidity of this or that proposition, often without any reference to his real theme. Having triumphantly exposed one or more absurdities and thus acquired the aplomb of a solid expert, he returns to his proper task, calculating that he will now inspire his reader with greater confidence. And Chestnut says, well, this is perfectly justified, this calculation. It's kind of a trick, but this actually works. The reader is afraid to attack a skilled dialectician and prefers rather to agree than to risk himself in argument. And he says, not even the greatest intellects, particularly in philosophy, disdain such stratagems. People do this all the time in their works. And then, you know, if you you think about this and then think about some of the things that you've read, you will find a lot of instances of that, maybe even in Shestov himself. Another uh, great example, if you want to get people to accept something and they don't already accept it, is to, we might say, start off slow. He says, you begin your argument with inoffensive, commonplace assertion. We all agree that there is a, a world out here, right? There is something like a human nature, even if we don't know what it is. He says, when suspicion has been sufficiently lulled and a certainty has been begot that what follows will be a confirmation of the reader's own accepted views, then has the moment arrived to speak one's mind openly. Now now you lay your cards on the table. But, he says, in the same easy tone, as if there were no break in the flow of truisms, the logical connection is unimportant. Consequence of manner and intonation is much more impressive than consequence of ideas. You go on in the same suave tone from uttering a series of banalities to expressing a new and dangerous thought without any break. If you succeed in this, the business is done. The reader will not forget the new words will plague and torment him until he has accepted them. So this is a trick. And again, you can see many authors doing this as well. That's why we have prefaces, right? In the preface, you say, well, we're doing this and here's, here's something. There will be some controversial ideas in here, but I'll be giving you some, some good reasons for it. And then you start, you know, start out with some examples. People love examples. And then eventually you get to the point where you're like, well, black is white. And then, whoa, wait, how did we get here? Right? Well, here's the argument for it. And then they're like, ah, that that can't possibly be true. But in the back of their mind, it's still working away. The other thing that he says that is really, it's one of the best things I think Shestov has ever come up with in terms of lines is this thing about the police agents. 
And what does he mean by the police agents? Morality, logic, and science. And he says, the writer's task is to go forward and share impressions with a reader. He's not obliged to prove anything. Does that mean he won't prove anything? No, he will prove some things. He'll make some arguments. He'll make a case for things. But the case doesn't have to be particularly good because he's not really making the case for the attentive reader. He's making it for these police agents because every step of his progress is dogged by them. He has to have some sort of argument with which to frustrate them so that they then engage that instead of going after him himself or, or herself or whatever. So he says, there's no necessity to trouble too deeply about the quality of argumentation. Don't worry about being inwardly right. It's enough if the reasoning which comes handiest will succeed in occupying those guardians of the verbal highways whose intention it is to obstruct his passage. So, you know, for creative people, they don't have to be totally consistent. They don't have to make great arguments. What they have to do is find things that have not been articulated in that way, shape something out of the void. And that's difficult enough already. So they don't have to make it to the bestsellers list. They don't have to win prizes. All they have to do is follow out the requirements, which are difficult enough, of creative activity. So very important theme. Again, I, I suggest that you think about some of the examples that Shestov provides and whether he himself is following some of these insights and guidelines that he's laying out. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.